rediscovering the book. We're looking at 2 Kings chapter 22. 2 Kings chapter 22. So Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. 1 Kings, 2 Kings. If you're in Chronicles, head to the left. Head to the left. 2 Kings chapter 22. We'll read a, a number of verses here. It's a great story. Just a great story for us. Praise the Lord. God is good. God is good. Yeah, so uh, we took up, uh, I, I had uh, uh, one of the teachers from Heartland High School uh, email me a couple months ago asking if we would help them as a church for food supplies because they help uh, uh, provide food for the students. Some of them come from poor backgrounds. And so, uh, you know, we've been advertising this. And so I said, yes, we will do this. And uh, I work through Renewing Hope Ministry, uh, which is a ministry of our church to solve problems, to what serve the community and to share the love of Jesus. And so they took it, took it upon themselves to kind of lead this. And uh, they were amazed, and I was amazed at how much food was brought in. I think it's our, for some reason, our greatest food drive ever that we've done. Uh, and uh, just we just packed that church van up today with huge boxes. And uh, so the doors all locked when I get there. Uh, so the school's all locked down. You have to ring this buzzer, and I tell them that I'm here from the church to bring you food supplies. And they said, would you like a cart? And I said, that would be great. So I'm thinking like a big cart. So they, they wheel out this little tiny cart. <laughs> I said, well, these boxes are big, so we'll just carry them in. And, uh, and so right when we started carrying it in, the Lord sent a, a heavy rain to come upon us. So we were praising the Lord for that. Praising the Lord for that. And uh, so we just bought in box after box after box. And uh, they couldn't believe how much was given. And I said, uh, we're just doing this in the name of Jesus, sharing the love of Jesus. And uh, if you need us to help you in any way in the future, just let us know. We'll see what we can do. Uh, we gave them invites to Easter and Good Friday. I personally invited her. Uh, Karen was her name to come to church. And uh, she, she actually did uh, before the pandemic. She came because we had helped Heartland High School out. And uh, she seemed open to the invitation. So praise the Lord for that. But it was just a tangible way that we can share the love of Jesus. And uh, so thank you all for buying those supplies. They got delivered today. And so I'm thanking the Lord for that. Also, uh, for those of you that uh, might want to report, uh, Sue Cohen is doing well. She's recovering from surgery. She thinks she'll be uh, released from hospital tomorrow, so that'll be great. Uh, on Monday, she slipped and fell in the church bathroom. Uh, the floor was wet because it had just been mopped. Thank you, Ellen, for that. And... Uh, put down extra grease, did you? Anyway, so she slipped and fell. She broke her hip and fractured her nose. And uh, so I'm sitting in my office, and Jen comes in and tells me that Sue fell, and she thinks she broke her hip. And I'm like, what? And anyway, I go out there. She's sitting in a wheelchair. So we wheeled her to, to the car and got her in. They took her to Huron Valley Emergency. They did the x-ray. Sure enough, she did break her hip did fracture her nose, and so they put the pins into, uh, last night, she had surgery last night, put pins in, 
And then uh, she had a good day today and went through therapy. She's doing really good. Uh, I texted her. I said, if, if people ask me what should I tell them, she says, thank you for your prayers. God is good. I'm praising the Lord. So that's good, right? And uh, we need to stop all this falling down. People are falling down all the time. And the Bible says there'll be a, a, a great falling away, a falling away in the end times, right? So we don't want to be a part of that. Anyway, but hopefully she'll be released from the hospital tomorrow. And I think if she's released from the hospital, just bring her to church, set her down in the office, and get her to work. <laughs> Rediscovering the book, Second Kings 22, verse 3. So Josiah's father was Ammon, and he was a wicked king. His grandfather was Manasseh, and he was extremely wicked, one of the most wicked kings that there was. So he didn't have a good upbringing, for sure. But you know what? God got a hold of his heart. Now it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah. So he began to reign at age 8. This is the 18th year, right, of King Josiah, that the king sent Shaphan the scribe, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam to the house of the Lord, saying, Go to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. And let them deliver it unto the hand of those doing the work, who are the overseers in the house of the Lord. Let them give it to those who are in the house of the Lord during doing the work to repair the damages of the house, to carpenters and builders and masons, and to buy timber and hewn stones to repair the house." Moreover, there, be, there need be no accounting made with them of the money delivered into their hand, because they deal faithfully. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law. I have found the book. That's amazing, isn't it? I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. So Shaphan the scribe went to the king, bringing the king's word, saying, Your servants have gathered the money and was found in the house of the Lord and have delivered into the hand of those who do the work who oversee the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. That's a sign of repentance, right? The tearing of the heart, that's what that symbolizes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Milkiah, this person, that person, this and that. He says in verse 13, go inquire of the Lord for me inquire so pray seek god for the people and for all judah concerning the words of this book that has been found for great is the wrath of the lord that is aroused against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us and i'll stop right there so the rest of this chapter also the next chapter second kings 23 talks about this great revival they kept the Passover like it's never been kept. They tore down idols. They repaired the house. They turned to the Lord. They honored God. Just wonderful. Now, the Bible warns us, right, about difficult times. The Spirit expressly says in the latter times, that's our time, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits 
and doctrines of devils. That's 1 Timothy 4.1. 2 Timothy reiterates this dangerous time, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. So the last days or the latter times is the time from the resurrection of Christ to his second coming. That's considered last days. And certainly as that day approaches, things begin to pick up like a, lo- like a woman in labor with contraction. It begins to speed up in intensity and frequency, and so it is in the last days. As the coming of the Lord draws nigh, more and more things are coming to pass more rapidly and more severely. But let's talk about deceiving spirits and doctrines and devils. I want to minister on or focus in on five areas that I think it's very important for us as a church to hold fast to, to believe in. The word sanctity means holy or sacred or godly or very important, or worth protecting. I want to first of all talk about sanctity of life. Now we talk about this in January. We have a time of prayer. The sanctity of life basically is the idea that life is sacred, that life is holy, that life has great value, that the Lord is our creator, that he's the giver of life, that we are made in the image of God. That uh, we don't destroy life, we guard it, we protect it because it's sacred and valuable. That's the sanctity of life. And that is why we as a church believe strongly in the right to life movement, protecting life at the moment of conception until the day of death. The sanctity of life. Now there are those that do not believe in that. And the Bible talks about doctrines of devils, all right? They do not believe in that. The thief comes to steal, to kill and to destroy. But the Lord comes to give life. He's the author of life, right? And he's the giver of life. And the Bible is very clear, especially in Psalm 139, that life begins at conception, that God is our creator, that it is God that gives life, it is God that takes life, that it's not up to us as individuals to decide life for somebody else. Suicide is wrong. We're not supposed to destroy our own life. And we're no, are we just take the life of somebody else? Now, God has given the power to government and courts to render verdict and to exact justice, but that's for a whole nother, whole nother message. The sanctity of life. That's one. The second one I want to talk about is the sanctity of marriage. Marriage is a divine institution. God establishes it right there in the book of Genesis. A man shall leave father and mother and be joined to his wife. And they too shall become one flesh. Jesus says, those whom God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. So concerning marriage, we look at it this way. It's rooted in creation. This is in your notes. Rooted in creation, Genesis 1.27. Reiterated throughout Scripture. The Bible talks about marriage as a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. It's repeated by Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. That marriage is created by God, instituted by God, and is a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. Reiterated 
excuse me, repeated by Jesus. Number four, representative of Christ and the church. That's Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and his church. So the woman represents the church who loves God or loves her husband. And Jesus represents the groom, the man who lays down his life, gives his life, loves his wife. It's a picture of Christ in the church, and it's reflective of the gospel there in Ephesians chapter 5 and the Song of Solomon. The love that the man and a woman share is reflective of the gospel, the love that Jesus has for his bride, the church. You see that richly in the Song of Solomon there in the Old Testament. So the sanctity of marriage being a divine institution, between a man and a woman, rooted in creation, reiterated throughout Scripture, repeated by Jesus, representative of Christ in the church, reflective of the gospel. See, what happens is, is when you leave off the book, you fall into error. And you began to think the wrong things and believe the wrong things and act wrongly like they did in the Old Testament, right? The next area I want to talk about is the sanctity of sex. The sanctity of sex. So we have the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of sex. It says in Hebrews 13, verse 4, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. According to the scriptures, there's five ways that the marriage bed is defiled. Two are found right here in Hebrews 13, verse 4. Fornication and adultery. That defiles the marriage bed. In other words, the marriage bed is pure when, or sex is pure when it's in marriage between the man and the woman. But marriage, that marriage bed is defiled when fornication is evolved, that's sex outside of marriage. When adultery is involved, that's when a married person engages with sex with somebody other than their spouse. Homosexuality defiles the marriage bed. Prostitution defiles the marriage bed. And so also does porn- pornography. As a man looks at a woman with lust, He's committing adultery in his heart. Those are five ways to defile what the Bible calls the marriage bed. The marriage bed is to be kept pure. Sexual intimacy is to be reserved for that couple alone. And uh, the sanctity of sex, biblical sex, as a church, we need to hold fast to the truth and teaching of God's Word. Of course, we live in a culture that doesn't embrace that, doesn't believe that. And, uh, but we need to renew our minds concerning this. Am I right about that? And to hold fast. Not to change the Scripture to fit the culture, but to believe the Scripture, live out the Word of God, and be a light to our, the culture. We've got to be a light to the culture. So we got the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of sex. This is a recent one, but it's a big one. I call it the sanctity of sexuality. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female. Male and female. He created them. That's the sanctity of sexuality. 
Children have a right to life, to sexual innocence, and to intact bodies without chemical mutilation or surgical mutilation, the sanctity of sexuality. When God made my daughter, when my wife said she was pregnant, I really wanted a daughter because I just thought that'd be special. And back then, they didn't do ultrasounds to determine the sex. You found out at birth. And Hannah was born, and I remember I'm, I'm up here looking at my wife's head. I'm not down there. I'm up here looking at my wife's head, concentrating with her, trying to get through this labor and delivery. And she gives birth, and the, I hear the doctor say, it's a girl. It's a girl. That's the sanctity of sexuality. She was created by God to be a girl. She's not a boy in a girl's body. She's a girl with a girl's body. That's what the Bible teaches. And so that was our first child. And then my wife gets pregnant about three years later. And boy, oh boy, do I want a boy. Give me a boy. Because I had a girl. Now I want a son. And you went into, she, she would labor progress really fast. She is actually, I'm taking her to the hospital, and she's going through transition, having the urge to push and everything. Hold on. Let me stop at Wendy's and get a hamburger. I'm hungry. (laughs) True story. And she got angry with me. So I drove by. I didn't stop. But I asked her, can I stop and get a hamburger? No. That's what she said to No. So I get her to the hospital. We get her up to the room, and man, it's coming fast. And just, like, just as, as the first one, I'm focused up here. And uh, she gave birth, and he says, it's a boy. It's a boy. And so that's the teachings of Scripture. Male and female, he created them. In a church, we need to, to believe that, to uh, minister that. They talk about gender-affirming, and yes, I believe there needs to be gender-affirming. You need to affirm their gender that they were born with. That's the gender-affirming that you need to do, because truth sets you free. Truth sets you free. They need to embrace truth. People that are struggling with this, and another thing about this, the Bible tells us that we are to renew our mind according to truth. And so if they feel a certain way, then they want to change their body to fit how they feel. But the Bible is just the opposite. You are to take your feelings and bring them under the authority of God's Word and embrace that. Does that make sense? And so you need to affirm your love You need to affirm God's love, and you need to affirm the truth of their sexuality. And I think as a church, we need to to do that and to preach that and to stand for that in a very loving way. It's just terrible what is happening. So we have the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of sex. Sex is pure within the marriage relationship, the sanctity of sexuality. God makes them male and female. There's only two sexes. There's only two sexes. And then finally, the sanctity of truth. The sanctity of truth. Jesus says in John 17, 17, your word is truth. 
So biblical truth is objective, foundational, and can be known. I say biblical truth is objective. It's not subjective. It doesn't, your feelings do not determine truth. Truth is objective. Whether you feel it or believe it, it doesn't have, make any difference whatsoever. Truth is truth. That's what I mean by objective. You don't have your truth and I have my truth. And my truth is not, uh, is not pliable depending on how I'm feeling. Truth is truth. And uh, so it's objective. And also it's foundation. What do I mean by that? You can stand on it and build your life upon it, and it becomes a sure foundation and keeps your feet from slipping in these very challenging times. Because the Bible says in the last days, everything's going to be shaken. So if you have the foundation of truth, it undergirds you, and you can know truth. And truth essentially in the Scripture is Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Pilate was looking at Jesus, and he says, what is truth? Well, he's right there. But his eyes were blinded. His eyes were blinded. So it is with so many out there that don't understand truth or don't embrace truth or don't know the one who is truth, Jesus Christ. They're blinded, and they need to receive Christ. And when they receive Christ, the Spirit illuminates them and they can know the truth of God's Word. Amen? Amen? So there we have it. The last days, there'll be deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. We see that in our culture. And why do we see that in our culture? Because our culture has gotten away from the book. The book. And so we no longer embrace the sanctity of life. We no longer embrace the sanctity of marriage between one, one man, one woman for life. We no longer embrace the sanctity of sex. Sex outside of marriage is just permissible, allowable, just fine. We no longer embrace the sanctity of sexuality. That also can be changed depending on your feelings. And then the sanctity of truth, we make it subjective. Your truth, my truth, we can all have our own truth, right? We need to live our authentic self. We need to live our authentic self. That's a buzzword. That's a catchword. And uh, basically how you feel, that's your authentic self. You need to live out your authentic self. Listen, it's the truth that sets you free. Grace is what saves you, but truth sets you free. You can believe a lie and be in bondage to that lie. Bondage to that lie. And every time you live, not according to the truth of God's word, but according to lies, you are sowing to your flesh destruction. And you will not have ultimate peace and the good fruit of the Holy Spirit. So in this passage that we read, 2 Kings 22, what happens when you neglect the book? Because Israel neglected the book. Now I have a couple scriptures down here. We're not going to read them, but basically this. The book of the law was, according to the scriptures, to be placed in the Ark of the Covenant. You know how they discovered the law? It should have been in the Ark of the Covenant all the time. What happened? I'm not sure. I don't know if they found the book in the ark or somewhere else, but it should have been, according to Deuteronomy 31, the law was to be placed in the ark. Number two, the king that was to have his own personal copy of the law and read it every single day, according to Deuteronomy. The king was to have his own personal copy of the law and to read it every single day. 
Now, this king, Josiah, he was a godly king. He's 26 years of age. It's in the 18th year that this is taking place. He was eight years old when, when he became king. So he's 26 years old. They discover the book. They're reading it to him, and he's just amazed at what it says. And it's probably the book of Deuteronomy they were reading because it talks about the judgments that are going to come upon the people of God if they don't obey the words of the law. Well, he should have had a copy of the law according to the law, in, in, as his own and reading it every single day. It shouldn't have been a surprise to him, but it was. And uh, according to Deuteronomy 33, the Levites were to teach the law throughout Israel. Now, obviously, they're not doing that. The king doesn't have his own personal copy. The law was somewhere in that uh, the temple that was in disrepair. Where they found it, we really don't know. But they neglected the book, and because they neglected the book, the house of God became neglected. Second Kings 22 verse 5 says, they need to repair the damages of the house. And let me tell you, uh, churches that neglect the Bible, stray away from the Bible, end up in disrepair. Yeah, listen to what it says in Haggai. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. So in the book of Revelation, Jesus is standing in the midst of the candlesticks. And so the candlesticks represent the church. He's in the midst of it. And he tells them that uh, he can remove the candlestick. A church can cease to be a church. Now, Jesus is the living word. It's the written word. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And uh, so the seven letters to the seven churches are warnings to the different churches. He even told one of the churches, you are dead. Dead. And there's all kinds of compromise in the different churches and those letters. Uh, and so we realize that the candlestick, you know, a candlestick is supposed to display the light of God, right? A church is to display the light of God. So the church is the pillar and ground of truth. We'll talk about this more next week. The pillar and ground of truth. And we're supposed to uphold, like a pillar upholds. So a church is to uphold truth. It's the foundation of truth. We, 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 we preach the word, so this is what the church is based on, right? But it's also upholding truth. We're always upholding truth. We're holding fast the word of the Lord. We preach. We teach the word of the Lord. Listen, if we move away from that, God can remove the candlestick, take away the blessings. We can lose the anointing. Find ourselves in the displeasure of God. And listen, if we, the more we move away from the clear teachings of Scriptures, the less we will have the blessing of God, the anointing of God, the less we'll see the activity of the Holy Spirit. Well, I don't want that to happen. Do you want that to happen? Now, we're living in a culture where, you know, they, the, the winds are, are against us when it comes to Christianity. And, uh, you know, I understand this, and I understand that certain pastors have tried to compromise the Word of God in order to find favor with the culture in which they find themselves in, and try to, maybe through soft-selling or compromising, 
be relevant to the culture. I've literally read articles written by pastors that say, you know, we, we can't talk about these things because if we talk about these things, then they're going to shut their heart because they're going to disagree, disagree with us. Therefore, we will no longer have uh, access to their hearts because the Word of God by preaching it, close their hearts. So we need to come at it from another way. Well, that's suicide as far as I'm concerned. Suicide. It's through the preaching of the Word that hearts are convicted. Now, when I got saved, I was a sinner. I loved sin. I wasn't interested in God at all. And I went to a church, and the Spirit of God was moving. The pastor was preaching, and God spoke to my heart, drew me by the Spirit. I got saved. And what did God do? He gave me a desire for the Word, a desire for truth. You see, that's what happens. They out there are dead in their trespasses and sins. They're walking in darkness. They don't love the truth. They don't even understand it. The most loving thing we can do is to bring truth to them with a heart of love for them. But to bring truth to them. Because grace saves, truth frees. Am I right about that? All right. So the house of God became neglected, and the people were perishing for lack of knowledge. Because the Word of God wasn't being taught, wasn't being believed, wasn't being followed, wasn't being acted upon or obedient to, listen to what it says in 2 Kings 22, verses 16 and 17. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants. All the words of the book which the king of Judah had read, because they have forsaken me. Now, this, this is the word of the Lord. Now, is this a loving word? Of course, for God is love. God is love. It's a word of judgment given by a loving God because he loved them and wanted them to turn from their sins so that they might be saved and step into the blessings of the Lord. Sometimes faithful are the wounds of a friend, and an open rebuke is better than secret love. Sometimes they need to be hit between the eyes with truth. Right? It says, Because they have forsaken me, burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. So the, the people of God, because the book was neglected, it wasn't being read, it wasn't being taught, it wasn't being followed, they were disobedience, they had turned to idolatry, they were rebellious, and they were heaping to themselves judgment from the Lord. And so God in His mercy enables them to find this book, and as they begin to read it and repent and turn to God, the blessings of the Lord come upon them. And that, that's love. That's love. You can't out-love God. Just remember that. When it comes to the Bible, you can't out-love God. Don't, 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 don't share that, that Scripture because, you know, it's too harsh. No, that is God's Word 
written by a loving God, and that could very well need, they, they might very well need that truth or that word to pierce their heart that they might feel their sin and turn to God and be saved. You know what led me to the Lord? was the idea of judgment was coming and the wrath of God was upon me. That's what led me to the Lord. I sensed God's displeasure with the life I lived, and I had a dream where the wrath of God was being poured out on me, and I woke up from the dream saying, I need to get right with God. Well, I needed that hard, truthful word spoken in love to me by a loving God whose intent was to save me, to awaken me. Wake up! You're lost. You're perishing, right? And God was not afraid to confront me with those words so that I might be saved. I'm glad he did. Imagine, I'd be dead by now. But the way I was going, I'd be dead by now and under the eternal judgment of Almighty God. But God, as a loving God, sent his strong word to awaken my conscience and pierce my heart with conviction so that I would turn to God and be saved and then enjoy the love of God in this life and in the life to come. Somebody give God praise for that. Amen? So you can't out-love God, and don't ever be embarrassed by what the Bible teaches. The Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God to salvation. Hmm. So, what happens when they rediscovered the book? Well, a lot of great things happened. Preaching and teaching became prioritized. In this passage of Scripture, 2 Kings 22, the priest, the king, the prophet, the people, they all began to read the book. You know, the, the priest found it. They, they then took it. They, they, they read it. They then took it to the king. They read it to the king. Then the king called the people together, the leaders, the elders together, and, and then all the people together. They all read it, and God began to use the teaching of that word, the reading of that word, the proclamation of that word, to start changing hearts. And there they were, under the judgment of God, and all of a sudden the, the, the nation of Judah begins to repent and turn to God and begins to honor God. That's the power of rediscovering the book. That's the power. The second thing I see is repentance was granted. Repentance was granted. In 2 Kings 22, it says this. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. On down to verse 19, he says, he wept before me. Repentance is granted. You know, it's a fallacy. Uh, Years ago, I talked to a guy, and he enjoyed life, enjoyed living life like he wanted to live life, and he didn't want to turn to Christ. Uh, He felt like uh, turning to the Lord would be a real buzzkill, right? You know, become a Christian, and now you got to live a holy life, and all the fun that he was enjoying, all that would dry up. And uh, so he, he said this, you know what? And no, he was just razzing me. He said, you know what? On my deathbed, I'll pray to be saved. I remember him telling me that. And the Lord gave me a great retort. I said, you know what? What if you don't want to be saved on your deathbed? 
Did you know, according to the Scriptures, God grants repentance? God grants repentance. Faith to believe is a gift from God. And so also is repentance. You just can't wake up and say, today I will turn to the Lord. If you're lost, dead in your trespasses and sins, you're blinded. You don't even, you're not even aware that you need God. Or who is God? Or will you, do, will you really want God? Or you live a life of sin, by the time you get on your deathbed, you're not even open to God. You're hardened to God. You don't even want God. You, you, he's just thinking, well, by the act of my will, I'll just turn to God on my deathbed. You know, it doesn't work that way. No one can come unto me unless the Father which sent me draws him. John six forty four. That's the words of Jesus. I got saved because God drew me to Jesus, to salvation, granted me the faith to believe and the, the, the ability to turn or repent from my sins. Salvation is always of the Lord. We need to believe, believe that and embrace that, right? And so they rediscover this book. Now the king is tearing his clothes. And, and why is the king tearing his clothes? You know, because he felt that. And why did he felt, feel that? Because the Spirit of God was dealing with them. The Spirit of God granted Josiah the ability to have godly sorrow that led to genuine repentance. You know, there's another Old Testament story where they brought the Word of God uh, to the king. And they read the word of the Lord to him. This is under Jeremiah's ministry, a prophet of the Lord. They read the word of God to him. And you know what he did? He cut it up and threw it in the fire. Then they read another portion of Scripture. He cut it up and threw it in the fire. Now, that king is hardening his heart, rejecting the word of the Lord, destroying God's word. And so Baruch, who was Jeremiah's spokesperson, went back to Jeremiah and said, the king cut it up and threw it in the fire. And the Lord gave uh, Jeremiah another word for the king and added to the message even greater judgment upon the king. But that king was not granted repentance. He remained hardened in his heart. So if you're a Christian tonight, you need to thank the Lord. You need to thank the Lord that you believed and that you repented of your sins, why do you need to thank the Lord for that? Because that is a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we are saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift from God. A gift from God. So they rediscover this book. They begin to read it, preach it, teach it, prioritize it. And the reading of it, the hearing of it, the proclaiming of it, God uses that word to bring about repentance in their heart. And then earnest seeking and prayer begins to take place. The king says this in verse 13, go inquire of the Lord for me. That's prayer, right? Talk to God, pray, seek the Lord. And in the book of uh, 2 Kings chapter 23, just one chapter over, all of Israel keeps the Passover like it's never been kept. You know, a time to honor the Lord and Passover. 
and seek God, inquire the Lord, pray to God, seek the Lord. You know that you are undergoing personal revival when you have a greater interest in prayer and a greater interest in seeking the Lord in his word. You know, if you don't have that, then you're not revived because that is a clear mark of revival. How much prayer you're giving yourself to and how much the seeking of the Lord in the words you're giving yourself to. If that's not being changed, if that's not being deepened, if that's not being stirred, then you're not being revived, that revival spirit. You know, we all want revival, right? And I realize there's different definitions of revival. I'm praying for revival. We're seeking God for revival. The Asbury revival. We need revival. I realize there's different definitions of revival, but this is one of the marks of revival or awakenings that take place is intense seeking of the Lord. Intense seeking of the Lord. Am I right about that? I heard one preacher say, when the prayer meeting becomes the, the, the largest attended meeting in the church, then you know you're in revival. When the prayer meeting. When people want to go to the prayer meeting. Well, I'm not sure if that's true or not, but it strikes home, doesn't it? That, uh, well, I want revival, but don't let me come. Don't, don't invite me to a prayer meeting. All right, unity increases. Number four. In verse 1 and 2, this is chapter 23, it talks about the king sent them to gather the elders. So look, just look, look at all these people here. The king sent them to gather the elders. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men, with all the inhabitants. So you got king, elders, men, inhabitants, the priests, five. The prophets, six. All the people, seven. Small and great. Man, they were all in. They were all in. It wasn't just a remnant that was feeling it. The unity, the idea they were unified around the Lord, about what God was doing, about what the next steps need to be, how important that is, right? When everybody is feeling it. Everybody's being drawn. Everybody's being, being uh, brought into what God is doing. I mean, they rediscovered the book, and they began to preach it and teach it, and there was a hunger for it, and they started repenting of their sins, and, and then they started seeking the Lord at a greater level, and then everybody's in it. Unity is increasing. I mean, that's wonderful stuff, isn't it? Boy, we need stuff like that. We need that. And what's the last one here? Evangelism takes place. Now, that's, that's hard to get out of the Old Testament here, but basically what I see here is Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. They are supposed to be different. You know, the law, you know, this is clean and this is unclean and this is holy and that's defiling and be separate and distinct from the nations and don't live like them. Uh, you are my people. You're to be holy unto me. And, of course, Israel had, because they had neglected the, the, the word of the Lord, uh, they, had, they were just acting like all the other nations. 
They'd given themselves over to idolatry. They were rebellious. They're doing their own thing. They're just acting like the Gentiles. But boy, when they got into the book and started seeking the Lord and started repenting, and they're, they're in chapter 23, they're burning their idols. They're turning to God. They're keeping the Passover. They're now living different, distinct, holy as unto the Lord. They were recapturing being a light to the surrounding nations. Listen, we will never have a testimony to those that don't know Jesus if we live like they live and embrace the values that they embrace. We need to live as unto the Lord with the fruit of the Spirit, being more like Jesus Embracing the values of Scripture, not being judgmental, not being hypocritical, but embracing the values of Scripture, then we're shining our light. We're shining our light. Our testimony is greatest when we're, you know, like a light on a lampstand, not covered up, but a light on a lampstand, shining and proclaiming and declaring. Listen, Jesus has made a difference. He's changed our lives. Look at what the Lord has done. He has delivered me. He's brought me peace and joy. That's our testimony. And that's what's taking place in the nation of Israel. So I conclude this with this. Let's pray for this to take place in our hearts, our home, and our church. Let's pray that this take place, that we rediscover the book, that we prioritize it, that we repent, that we seek the Lord, that we seek the Lord together, and in so doing, shining our light in this dark, dark world. We don't do so with pride in our hearts because we know what it's like to not know the Lord. We do it because we love God and love people. Amen? We love God and love people.